Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And now, with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Um, I'd like to start my remarks by talking about two relatively pivotal events that took place over the last week and discuss whether they are pivotal or not. Um, First of all, we spoke last week a little bit about President Joe Biden's visit to Israel, um, or after he was in Israel, he traveled uh, to Riyadh, to Saudi Arabia. But let's first talk about what happened in Israel. And um, there was a lot of expectation in Israel that something was going to happen, that was going to be some sort of deliverable, um, that there was going to be something, as Israelis call tachlis, something very actionable. And in the end, there really wasn't that much. There was a US-Israel strategic understanding with lots of points on how they can work together on various issues, et cetera, et cetera. But there was really nothing new in there. Uh, as much as Prime Minister Yelapir tried to make it into something very significant, he even um, framed uh, the signed document between him and uh, Joe Biden uh, and uh, himself, uh, you know, put it up on the wall in the cabinet room, really trying to uh, make of it something that probably there wasn't, um, because there was nothing particularly new. It was, you know, strategic relationship. It was talking about, uh, you know, fighting uh, those or battling those who seek Israel's destruction, all the usual sort of language that, you know, has been used by US presidents for many, many years. There wasn't really anything particularly exciting or new and unique. Um, but the two sides tried to make something out of it. What there was, was a very nice feel-good visit. Joe Biden, you know, who has a long-standing relationship with Israel, who has a favorable, favorable sentiment towards Israel. Um, despite what some may say, you know, Joe Biden is a friend of Israel. Uh, he's shown that over the years. Um, you know, not everything is what his comments and his actions are what Israel is like, but he certainly... Uh, would consider himself a friend of Israel. He said uh, during his opening remarks when he landed uh, that he considers himself a Zionist and you don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist. Um, he talked about the Jewish people's deep roots and deep connection uh, with, the, with the land of Israel. Uh, in an interview, he talked about, he was asked, uh, what about the more extreme progressive wing in his party? And he openly rebuked them saying he thinks they're wrong. They're wrong to attack Israel. They're wrong on Israel, uh, really calling them out. Um, and so he said all the right things. Uh, there was various meetings. Of course, he went to Yad Vashem, as every world leader does, and especially uh, an American sitting president will do. Um, he received a medal uh, of honor from the Israeli president. Um, again, both sides tried to play that up. But interestingly enough, earlier in the week, the Czech uh, Prime Minister had received exactly, or the Czech President had received exactly the same medal, uh, which kind of hushed hushed a little bit to give it more significance when uh, Joe Biden received it. But it was a good trip. But again, nothing particularly came out. There was, uh, during uh, uh, President Biden's time in Israel, there was 
this relatively, I wouldn't say obscure, but certainly didn't go into details, that Saudi Arabia put out um, an official communique that they would open up their skies to all nations and national airlines. Uh, Israel certainly saw that as a great victory. President Biden played that up. The Saudis, on the other hand, said there's nothing particularly exciting. This is not a step towards normalization. This is normal affairs. It's clear that it was somewhere in between. It was another step towards normalization. But as the Saudis have made clear many, many times, uh, probably full normalization will not happen until there's either significant movement or a deal with the Palestinians. Uh, we have to remember Saudi Arabia is not the United Arab Emirates, it's not Bahrain, it's not Morocco, it's not Sudan and some of the other nations that have made peace with Israel. Saudi Arabia really is the jewel in the crown. It's the uh, most significant Arab nation. So normalization will not come uh, so easy, although there are significant steps. Um, but when uh, President Biden left, uh, Israel, he traveled straight to Saudi Arabia. I think that's the first time that um, an, uh, a plane has officially traveled from Tel Aviv to Riyadh. Um, and as opposed to uh, the greeting that President Biden received in Israel with the, uh, with the prime minister and the whole government and leader of the opposition, Netanyahu, of course, meeting and greeting him at the airport uh, in Riyadh, he was not met by the head of state or even the basic uh, de facto ruler, MBS, um, he was met later at the palace. And that was the big moment that a lot of people wanted to see. What was the reaction between President Biden and uh, MBS, the de facto ruler of uh, Saudi Arabia? And don't forget, this is someone who uh, this Biden administration has said is responsible for the killing of Saudi uh, journalist, Hash Khoji. Um, so it was really a difficult moment for President Biden. He had said during his time in Israel that he wasn't shaking hands. Ostensibly, that was because of Corona, but that didn't last very long. And he went from the fist bumps to shaking hands pretty quickly. In Saudi Arabia, he went straight back to the fist bump because he did not want that picture uh, of the shaking hands, the warmth. There was no smiles, not on the face of President Biden, not on MBS's face either, um, because it didn't really serve either their purpose. Uh, President Biden was attacked by obviously his left wing in the Democratic Party, uh, uh, principally by Bernie Sanders. And it's certainly not a picture that sat well with the left wing of the Democratic Party, or maybe even the mainstream of the Democratic Party, after what has been found. But it's it was a necessary step because basically everything comes down to oil. And because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, America has had to go elsewhere to try and get as much oil as possible. It's clear that MBS and the Saudi regime were enjoying this U-turn by the Americans, try to milk it as much as possible. According to reports from the face-to-face -face between President Biden and MBS, um, President Biden did raise the issue of Khashkoji, uh, and the Saudis uh, retorted, well, what about Abu Akleh, the um, Al Jazeera journalist that uh, was killed uh, when there was an Israel incursion to arrest terrorists in Jenin a few weeks ago that made a lot of international noise. And he brought up uh, Abu Ghraib and some other gripes. So it was clear that MBS was not going to uh, lay down and play nice. Uh, and in fact, even what Biden came away with was certainly not this, uh, you know, massive uh, understanding that, you know, some they were going to fill the gap of the Russians. Um, but it certainly was an important meeting nonetheless. What 
was sort of in the background, and it's still unclear exactly what it means, is talk of a regional defense pact. Now, this is something that was raised a number of months ago that would include the US, would include Israel, would include Saudi Arabia, UAE, et cetera, et cetera, this sort of moderate, you know, this moderate arc uh, in the Middle East uh, that basically ostensibly is standing against Iran and its allies, which one can understand is something that Iran feels very threatened by. And that leads me to the second event, which happened today, where we saw a meeting of uh, the Iranian president, the Turkish president, and the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, um, who came into Iran. He even had a meeting with the supreme leader. Um, but what was important here was to show a retort to this moderate arc in the Middle East, as I said, with the US, Saudi Arabia, Israel, et cetera, et cetera. Again, it's, it's unclear if there's something official, you know, this relationship has been going on for a while. The Saudis and uh, the Israelis behind the scenes have a good working relationship on military defense and intelligence affairs. But it, it remains to be seen if there's something official at this stage. But it's certainly something that um, Iran feels threatened by. So it decided to call in some of its allies. Now, each of the players at that meeting has something to gain. Obviously, Iran wanted to show that it also has its allies. Uh, Turkey is a major player in the region um, and it's a NATO member, don't forget. So to have a NATO member at a meeting with two sort of, you know, uh, nations under sanctions in Iran and Russia certainly would be something that would worry the West. Also, the fact that uh, Turkey has a veto like every other NATO um, member against new membership and uh, Finland and Sweden are being invited to join NATO. But the fact that Russia uh, Turkey was there with Russia, uh, probably creates some unease that that could happen. Uh, interestingly enough, when uh, President Erdogan and President Putin met, President Putin was given a little bit of a taste of his own medicine. On many occasions, many uh, world leaders have complained that President Putin keeps them waiting. And that certainly happened to President Erdogan in, in the past. And it was played up in Russian media with even a timer uh, on the side. Well, President Erdogan got his own back and made President Putin stand in front of the cameras, looking very uneasy, pacing back and forward for 55 seconds. Something was played out very prominently in the Turkish media. But it's clear that there's an interest here. There's an interest not just in pushing back against this US-Saudi-Israel-led coalition, but also, ostensibly, this was the major reason for the meeting, is what's going on in Syria. Turkey has an interest to create a greater buffer zone between uh, it, uh, between it and what it believes are its interests in Syria, namely suppressing the Kurds. And we saw attacks even recently. Uh, Russia does not want to necessarily see that, nor does Iran. Interestingly enough, they came out, uh, Russia came out uh, during the meeting talking about that, uh, you know, Syria's uh, territorial contiguity should be respected by all. Ironic for a nation which has invaded another nation still occupies a significant part of that nation. That was that irony was not lost on anyone. But um, Russia also wants um, new players to take some of its natural resources. Iran is certainly someone, uh, a nation that could perhaps do that. Iran also wants Russia's support on the uh, talks to return to the JCPOA, because it is a significant part of the P5 plus one, even though it has been sidelined as of late since it's uh, invasion of Ukraine. Um, and so there were many, many uh, factors uh, involved in this meeting. There was talk of uh, weapons, 
supply. The Russians could supply uh, Iran, and, and that's something which has certainly worried Israel in the past because Russia does have, to a certain extent, some sophisticated uh, weapons, certainly some defense weapons, and it has uh, given over uh, in the past some weapons which worried Israel if it ever needs to, uh, uh, you know, uh, conduct an attack on uh, the Iranian nuclear program. Uh, interestingly enough, around the same time, uh, an Iranian official came out and said that Iran now has the full capability to create a nuclear weapon, which is probably the first time we've heard such a clear statement. Then uh, there was a bit of a walk back because, as we know, a number of years ago, uh, whenever Iran is accused of making its way towards a nuclear weapon, they claim that there was a fatwa uh, by the Ayatollahs. A fatwa is a religious uh, Islamic edict which basically said that uh, under Islam, you're not allowed to have weapons of mass destruction like uh, nuclear weapons. Obviously, we know all the evidence over the last couple of decades knows that that's not true, but that is the line. And that was uh, the line was held despite the official, uh, the initial official uh, remarks. And that was probably part of the whole game to put it out there and then retract it again so they could play both sides. Um, the relationship between Israel and Russia is certainly deteriorating. And we could see the fact that Russia was sitting with Iran, a nation, again, which has talked long about uh, the destruction of the Jewish state. Uh, and the relations are deteriorating because simply today we have Prime Minister Yair Lapid in office. And if we remember during the early days of this government or the early days of the invasion on the Ukraine, there was this sort of double act. There was this good cop, bad cop. Uh, Naftali Bennett was the good cop regarding Russia and went to meet with Vladimir Putin and wouldn't condemn openly. Whereas you had Yale Lapid, who at the time was foreign minister, who called what Russia was doing as war crimes, who came up very strongly and aggressively uh, against Russia. Now, the fact that those uh, that he is now uh, as prime minister, uh, the Russians have come out and said that, uh, you know, innovate diplomatic speak, that they are worried about it. It could potentially change the attitude. For Israel, the major issue, as it always has been, is its ability to fly in Syria, to bomb Iranian and Hezbollah and Syrian targets, which threaten uh, its northern border, the, 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 the de-conflict, uh, understanding where Israel will not target any of Russia's assets in Syria. Uh, but it, it needs to retain that ability to take out uh, those uh, weapons shipments or anything that could threaten Israel's border. That's something that Israel has been doing uh, for a number of years. That is Israel's biggest worry when it comes to Russia. Everything else pays, pales into insignificance, but certainly for the Americans, for the Saudis, and arguably above all, the meeting that took place today in Tehran with the Turkish, Russian, and Iranian leaders will certainly be uh, a source of concern but it very much comes uh, as part of a reaction to uh, President Biden's visit and some of the talk of a regional defense pact uh, there. Uh, so that's certainly something to look at to see exactly where Russia is going. This was uh, Vladimir Putin's first trip outside of the uh, sort of former Soviet Union bloc. Uh, and the fact that he went to Tehran uh, suggests a lot. Um, and, and we'll see what happens on uh, another diplomatic uh, event which took place today. Mahmoud Abbas, the leader of the Palestinian Authority, um, was in France to meet with Emmanuel Macron. Emmanuel Macron made all the usual comments about the necessity 
to restart Palestinian-Israeli negotiations, because as we know, there has been no negotiations since 2014, that's eight years. Um, and again, we heard the sort of predictable talk of if negotiations do not uh, uh, you know, return, there could be violence in the region, et cetera, et cetera. Israel's heard that before. It's not going to get uh, too excited. Mahmoud Abbas also raised the idea of trying the French trying to push Israel on elections. Now, for those who have been following this uh, uh, webinar for a while, know that uh, you know there haven't you know uh, there's been a lot of criticism about the fact that the Palestinian has not uh, held any elections, not presidential, not parliamentary, and not municipal. Uh, the bottom line is, is because Mahmoud Abbas knows that he would lose any and probably all of those elections, but his excuse is not to hold them. And many times that they were uh, put in the calendar and then last minute they were uh, removed. His excuse is that um, they would not include Jerusalem uh, Palestinians, uh, Jerusalem Arabs, Arabs in East Jerusalem, uh, because they know that Israel will not allow um, people under its sovereignty. Uh, and as we know, Israel has sovereignty over all of Jerusalem, so it would not allow people under sovereignty to vote in a Palestinian election. So Mahmoud Abbas raises that time and time again as an excuse not to hold elections. Um, but it is something that we will probably hear more and more about uh, in the coming months, because it is an excuse that he likes to rely on very, very frequently. Just to go back uh, to go to a little bit of domestic politics, uh, we, interestingly enough, after a lot of pressure, a lot of hype, Zava Galon, the former leader of the Merits Party, is returning to run in the elections. Many people think it's already a done deal. As Nitzan Horowitz, the current leader of Merits Party and the health minister, has said he will not run for the Merits leadership again. He will run for in the primaries of the party for the Knesset, but he has uh, put that aside. So it seems almost likely that Zava Galon will uh, lead the Merits Party, and she is a popular figure, so it could actually help uh, very much the Merits Party to move away from a position of, you know, sort of flirting with the uh, electoral threshold. Uh, on the other side of the political map, uh, it's official now that uh, uh, ben uh, Benjamin Netanyahu will be the leader of the Likud Party after Yuli Edelstein withdrew from the race. No one else was going to take him off. And the time to put up any candidacy, and sometimes you even put a random one, uh, just to make a bit of noise for that person, no candidates were put forward. So when that time uh, ran out, uh, former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu became uh, officially the leader of the Likud going into the elections. And they have primaries, and it's very interesting to see who will run. There's a bit of a standoff at the moment uh, in the party because there's uh, the uh, Netanyahu wants to make sure that the primaries are open for all positions to the whole Likud list. Whereas people like Chaim Katz wants to make sure that it's just um, the central committee. Now, why that's important is because Chaim Katz is a very powerful figure within the central committee. And it could be that he's able to get his people in the important positions in the primaries. Netanyahu wants to stop it. At the moment, he is able to stop it. But certainly Chaim Katz has not had the last word. So it will be very interesting how that plays out because Netanyahu really wants a strong list. He wants as much uh, of, of a serious list as possible to present to the public uh, in what will be, uh, as we've discussed in the past, really a fight for his life, political life, we should say, perhaps arguably his last chance uh, to return to uh, the premiership. So certainly he does not want to leave anything to chance and he wants to 
ensure that his cards are played very well ahead of the elections. And with that, I'm happy to answer any questions on anything I've mentioned or any other issue. Thank you so much. So the first question is from Daniel Pipes. Uh, how much has the Russian force in Syria weakened because of the movement of personnel and arms to the Ukrainian front? Well, certainly that was an issue that was being brought up. The last thing the Russians need is another front. They need all uh, available resources uh, in, in the Ukraine. They do not want another front. They do not want to face Israel. They do not want to uh, pressure some of the other players uh, in Syria. So certainly for the Russians at this point, their main issue is just not aggravating the situation in any way because they really want all the focus of uh, their military uh, in Ukraine. So that's another reason why this meeting took place. As I said, the main sort of headline for the outside world about this event uh, that took place with the uh, Russian, uh, Iranian, Turkish president was really about Syria to try and figure out what's going to go on in Syria because there's, although they, they all have their own interests there, they want to try and figure out a way of working together uh, in what is a very important theater for all three countries. Thank you. David Levine asked, several media outlets indicated that Russia was shutting down the Jewish agency's activities in Russia. Do you have any information on that? It's interesting. I've actually checked into that and I'm getting very conflicting versions of events. Some are saying that it's been shut down. I don't think it has been shut down. Apparently, it's now officially being tagged as a foreign entity. It certainly is having problems dealing with the Russian authorities, especially on the issue of Aliyah, which is one of its main roles uh, in Russia. Uh, it does seem to be still existing. It hasn't been shut down, but certainly its relationship with uh, the Russian authorities is weakened. Uh, this is one of the indications that Russia is giving to Israel that it's unhappy with uh, its position on Ukraine and other issues. Uh, so sometimes these are the things which give you very strong indication of where President Putin is sitting vis-a-vis -vis Israel. Thank you. And Barack Korkmaz asks, do you expect Turkey to support a defense act led by the U.S. and based around Israel against Iran? Well, as we saw today, I mean, the fact that Turkey were part of this trilateral meeting shows that they're certainly not in the U.S., Israel, Saudi camp. As I said, they have their own interests, um, certainly in uh, Syria, on their borders, certainly with vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Kurds. That is where they're uh, their interests lie, uh, but at the moment they certainly openly and publicly have placed themselves in the opposition camp at this time. But Turkey have also tried to make nice with a lot of other nations in the region, uh, some of those that it has posed in the past, and Erdogan, Israel being one of them. And Erdogan certainly has been uh, trying to make nice and try to make new friends. So at the moment it's trying to be as friendly as possible with all nations, but the fact that it so openly and publicly attended this meeting uh, certainly will display which direction it's going on to many in the West. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, Carrie Hillebrand asked, will Channel 13's Gil Tamari's irresponsible trip to Mecca impact on the development of Israel-Saudi ties? Um, well, that's an interesting, for those who aren't aware, uh, what's being referred to, uh, Gil Tamari, who is a diplomatic correspondent, usually best based in Washington, uh, filmed himself entering Mecca, even into the holy center of Mecca. Uh, he was, I think it was at Mount, um, I think it's called Mount Arafat, where, where part of the Hajj takes place. And as we know, under Saudi rule and under Muslim um, rule, 
uh, non-Muslims are not allowed to go there. And the fact that he recorded himself created quite a lot of backlash. Um, so I, I, it, it remains to be seen. At the, you know, he, it, it is a, pr a personal private initiative of his. He called it good journalism, responsible journalism. Um, it could be that some messages were sent. But again, he was invited into the country. I'm sure he wasn't invited into Mecca. Um, so I don't think it will uh, you know, greatly impact. I'm sure the Saudis understand you know, the role of the media in a democracy like Israel, and you know, they can't really control them. And I'm sure no Israeli official was aware of what Gil Tamara is going to do and certainly did not give him a green light uh, to do so. No one is suggesting that. So I don't think it will have any long-lasting effect on uh, burgeoning relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Thank you. Uh, Robert Lerick asks, doesn't the Kurds' fate also bring up the stability of Iraq from Iranian dominance, as well as control of territory to the Mediterranean? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that, that's, that's an important point as well. There's a lot of, as I said, there's a lot of moving parts, a lot of partnerships, a lot of alliances on some issues. They're allied on, on others, uh, less so. The Kurdish issue is a long-standing issue. Uh, many of the players, uh, you know, who, who, who went to Tehran, who are in Tehran today, certainly are not friends of the Kurds. Um, so, you know, at, you know, the Kurds don't really have too many friends at all at this point. Um, but it remains to be seen how much of a free hand, if at all, Turkey will be given um, to, you know, to act against the Kurds. I mean, uh, to, the, to the best of my knowledge, they acted against them today, even bombing, I think, a tourist site and killing civilians. Uh, and there was very little international outrage. Um, so it just shows the position, the weakened position of the Kurds. And, you know, if President Erdogan in Turkey can get away with those sort of things uh, without too much outrage, with too much pushback, it really, you know, uh, doesn't bode well for the Kurds uh, in Syria and also in Iraq. Thank you. An anonymous attendee asks, as I understand it, Israeli jets have fired missiles into Lebanon, Lebanese airspace. In doing so, they haven't been threatened by any country's anti-aircraft missiles. Is this your understanding as well? Um, I'm not I'm not sure what the um, uh, person is asking. Israel does certainly you know, conduct sorties over Lebanon whenever it needs to, sometimes to send a message. Sometimes it does if it feels threatened, if it feels the Lebanese have taken... Uh, some acts at the moment, the Lebanese uh, have been threatening uh, Israel's uh, new gas um, um, station. This is part of the ongoing Lebanese-Israel discussions, exactly demarcating who, you know, where the gas field uh, lies, whether it lies in the Lebanese area, which is obviously what Lebanon is saying, or whether it uh, lies in Israel in the entirety, something that's more close. You know, the American mediators are certainly trying to close that, but the Lebanese and Hezbollah have been threatening that position quite a lot. We saw Prime Minister Lapid fly over that to send a message, this is ours, and we will defend it. There's been quite a lot of rhetoric uh, between the nations over that uh, oil rig as of late, or gas rig, I should say. Thank you so much, and we'll move on to some policy issues. This is most questions we've gotten for Israel Insider in a while. Uh, Larry Dunn asks, what are the policy differences between Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid? It's a very good question and something I've said before, these elections, even more so than previous ones, will be not too much about policy issues. They'll be more about individuals. They'll be more about threats. They'll be more about vote for us. So we'll be able to prevent that one from uh, getting into office. 
Um, there isn't too much daylight between the two on many of the substantive issues of the day. Perhaps on, on diplomatic issues, on security issues, very little, uh, especially uh, now that Gideon Sars uh, joined um, uh, Benny Gantz. Perhaps on religion and state issues, Benny Gantz is much closer to the ultra-Orthodox uh, than Yael Apid. Yael Apid um, doesn't have the best relationship. And this week it was leaked that he has tried to create a new ultra-Orthodox party that would work with him to sort of give, uh, give a new sheen on the relationship between Yashatid and the ultra-Orthodox. Uh, it doesn't seem to be too successful. Uh, at the moment, there is no such party. And even if there is, it, it, it remains to be seen if it will get receive any, any votes. So certainly uh, the one most likely at this point to be able to form a government probably would be Benny Gantz, just because he has Gidon Saar and uh, has a far better relationship with the ultra-Orthodox, who will become possibly potentially kingmakers after the next elections. But as I've said, I don't think that there'll be too many uh, you know, stress on policy issues ahead of the elections. I think they'll be divisive. I think they'll be personality-based and they'll be more about vote for us to stop them rather than vote for us because of our important policies. Thank you. And a follow-up to that from Larry Dunnigan. Is the religious Zionist party going to split in two or will Smotrich and Ben Veer run together? That is, is a very good question. At the moment, they're sort of playing chicken. Uh, the religious Zionists have primaries where uh, the... Uh, ben Gvir's party does not. Uh, they're trying to uh, run together. Ben Gvir is trying to put pressure through the press, through the rabbinical authorities who they both respect, to try and put pressure for them to run together. Uh, religious, uh, it's, it's less about them running together or not running together. It's about who will get the uh, you know, important positions on the list. Uh, probably at the moment, according to most polls, they're polling between 10 and 8 seats, which is quite significant growth for them. Uh, so it remains to be seen who will get the lion's share of those uh, seats. Uh, will Ben Gvir be able to, at the moment, I think in, the, in this current Knesset, I think he has two members of Knesset from his Otsmar party and the rest are from the religious Zionists, apart from uh, one which was from the Noam party. Um, but it, at the moment, that's really where the game is. It's not about whether they're going to run together or not. It's who's going to compromise because Ben Gvir, according to the polls that have been shown, if he is running the party, he will actually get more votes than Smotrich. Uh, my personal belief is they'd probably get more running separately because there is a significant population, I believe, who would vote for Smotrich but not Ben Gvir. Uh, and if they're together, perhaps they have to look elsewhere, perhaps the Likud, perhaps the Shas, uh, some of the other parties. If they run together, as I said, they will be uh, putting some off. So I actually think they'd be more powerful uh, running separately, but there is always that worry because sometimes you're polling well, but as it comes closer to the elections, you know, it can only take a bit of a downturn and suddenly you're under the electoral threshold. So I think both will understand and want to run together. So at the moment, it's more about who will have more power and who will have the greater numbers in that top 10, which are the realistic spots for any joint party. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you again for taking time thank to update you. us this week. For our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Joseph Sabag discussing fighting BDS, one American state at a time. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.